Okay, well, we're going to carry on in our study through Mark 13, which is where we were last week. A bit of a malice session last Sunday. I apologize if it was just like an overload of information. But I really wanted to try and just get across the reality of the deception um, that is coming. Um, and as I said, I really feel there's a danger, a complacency sometimes within the Christian church that we feel we're not going to be deceived, that we think we've got it, we understand it. Now, you know, as a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, that should be our safeguard, that the Word of God should keep us on the straight and narrow. It should stop us from being deceived. But at the same time, we need to keep our ears open. We need to be aware of what's going on uh, and see the dangers that are out there. Uh, and, you know, when you look in the New Testament, so much of the New Testament is all about the deception that is coming. Uh, so we need to be very wise. Uh, Jesus said that we should be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. Uh, and so there's a real necessity to be reminded of those things. Um, but we're going to carry on with our, our study this morning. Let's just bow our hearts before we go into God's Word together, shall we? Well, Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to warn us of the dangers and the pitfalls that are up ahead. And Lord, we pray that you give us the wisdom and the discernment to know what is true, what is false. Lord, to know what is really of you, and Lord, what is not? Lord, as we see things happening within the church, Lord, give us again those eyes that can determine and discern, Lord, what is right. And not just go, Lord, with what seems popular or what seems to be successful. Um, Lord, we've already said this morning that, Lord, it's not about success but obedience. And help us, Lord, to be obedient to you and to your word. Father, this morning as we continue this study, open our eyes and our understanding. Help us to, Lord, just grasp these things. Uh, and Lord, what you wanted to share with your disciples, with your church, that we would understand, Lord, the things that are coming upon this earth. And Lord, we ask it that we would grow together in knowledge and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. So, once again, we are in this period of time that we refer to very often as Passion Week. Um, We've uh, highlighted already that we've got to the Tuesday of the week, uh, and we've got to that kind of uh, Olivet Discourse, one of the, the longest um, discourses uh, that we have of Jesus in Scripture. I just want to read to you um, the opening of the, uh, of the comments by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Some of you may have heard of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. This is from his book, Footsteps of the Messiah. Uh, it's a real classic uh, and a really good book when it comes to understanding these things. Um, he says this, The famous Olivet Discourse of the Messiah occurred between two significant events. Immediately preceding the Olivet Discourse, the Messiah spoke the final words of his public ministry, found in Matthew 23, 1-39, which contains the denunciation of the leadership of Israel, especially for their guilt in leading the nation to reject the Messiahship of Jesus. With these words, the public ministry of the Messiah as a prophet came to an end. And for the remainder of his last few days on earth, he would deal exclusively with his disciples. In verses 37 to 39. Jesus also laid down the precondition to the second coming. In that he will not return until the Jewish leaders ask him to return. Just as the Jewish leaders once led the nation to reject his messiahship, a day must come when they will lead the Jewish people to accept his messiahship. Immediately after the Olivet Discourse came the preparation of the last Passover and the first, uh, as in the first Lord's Supper or communion as we refer to it. These events came just before his death uh, and, and goes on. So that goes, gives us the framework of where we are in these things. And we've said already that Jesus in this discourse gives us this glimpse into the future. And we're going to see him foretell the destruction of the temple. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, looking at this coming worldwide deception. Uh, and we've touched on a little bit of that last week. There's more to come of this deception because we need to understand that the deception doesn't just come upon the church. That was a lot of what we were talking about last week. I believe that Jeremiah is an incredible model of all that is going to come because of the things that Jeremiah went through um, when the priests were leading the nation astray and saying that, that you know, oh, peace, peace, there's not going to be struggle and conflict and the Lord won't allow those things to happen to us. And, and the, the church today at large has got that kind of mindset. 
um, there's still this ideal, as it was in Jeremiah's day, that everything's going to be sorted out uh, and that we're going to pave the way and then the Messiah will, will come. And there's many in the church that have this mindset that, and it's really a, a vestige of what was taught by the Catholic Church that was really inherited by the Anglican Church, never dealt with by the Baptists and the Methodists, and all these denominational groups that came out of the established churches that existed. You know, they all had good things about them, very good things. But they all failed in so many regards to address some of these problems. And this idea that we are going to win the world for Christ somehow has carried on being perpetuated. And that's not the case. We're not going to stay here and convert the world. As much as that would be a lovely thing, that's not our job. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't ask us to do that. Yes, we are to preach the gospel and yes, we are to be you know, ready in season and out of season to pre- preach, convince, rebuke, exhort, all those kind of things. But in terms of converting the world, that's not our business. That's not our job. Yes, wherever we have opportunity, we are to be ambassadors, to be witnesses. But the idea that the church will suddenly become this force for good in the world that will turn back this tide of evil is completely contrary to everything we read in the New Testament. In Second Thessalonians, it speaks about the mystery of iniquity. It's already at work, and it's going to get worse. You know, so sometimes people and Christians get perplexed when they see things happening. Now, wasn't it great this week with the ruling regarding Ashes Bakery? I'm sure many of you heard about that. What a, what a fantastic thing. We, we praise the Lord for that. But you know what? It wouldn't have been a bad thing if it had gone the other way. And I say that because... We're going to see these things happen, and we shouldn't be surprised. Now, there will be another decision that will come in, in sometime in the future that will go against the church, against Christianity, against what we stand for. And, you know, and we shouldn't get disheartened by those things. You know, I, I genuinely rejoice for that couple because they have been so faithful to the Lord, and I believe the Lord has given them that result, and it's a wonderful thing. And it does give us that kind of freedom of speech for a little bit longer. But what happens when that gets overturned in some future, you know, situation, a future, uh, you know, predicament with some other couple, some other firm or, or, or Christian in some situation? You know, we, we, uh, the danger is we can become so negative and it's like well, almost as if the, the Lord's abandoned us. No, this is what's going to happen. The Lord said these things will happen. And we'll talk a little bit more as we go through this morning. So we need to understand that there is going to be a, a real deception that will come and will uh, be like a fog engulfing the church. And there's also going to be deception that's going to be engulfing the world. These things are going to come upon the earth, and we'll talk more as we go through. And Jesus obviously goes through some of the events that will precede his second coming. And just to highlight again, this is all happening now, just 48 hours or so before the crucifixion. On this Tuesday of this final week that Jesus spends with his disciples. And so uh, we're just going to run and jump into this because we looked at these verses last week. But as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, so again, out of here, shot it out of the, the crowd, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Uh, and again, just to recap, the temple is one of the things, these, the signs of Jesus coming, the parousia uh, or his advent, his return, and then what will be the end of the age? What will happen? Uh, how will we know? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. And that's where we stopped last week looking at that in a lot of depth. And let me just again state what Amos says. Amos 3 verse 7. Surely the Lord will do nothing but he reveals his secret unto his servants the prophets. See, all these things are recorded in advance. And in actual fact, a lot of the things the disciples asking Jesus at this point the answers that Jesus gives them were straight out of Scripture. They could have found themselves. Um, and that's not to, to be uh, judgmental or harsh regarding the disciples, but actually so often we're lazy. We don't go to God's Word to find out what's going to happen. And yet, this verse tells us that God has revealed everything. You know, we shouldn't be taken by surprise when things happen. And again, the Bible doesn't predict future events. It foretells them. It's simply the future that's been recorded in advance of us getting there because God is outside of time. Well, Jesus goes on and says, For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum and, and many others have made the case that there have been so many false messiahs. And he says, uh, I'm just going to quote from here, he says, the first general characteristic of the church age would be the rise of false messiahs. And historically, Jesus was the first person who claimed to be the messiah, and of course was. But after him, many came claiming to be the messiah. From the time of Jesus until about the middle of the 1850s, a great number of Jewish men, from Simon bar Kokhbar to Sabatil Dizvi uh, and uh, Jacob Frank, arose claiming to be the messiah and indeed led many astray. Gentiles have also claimed the messianic title. Um, but this is to be a general characteristic of the church age. So this has happened now throughout the last 2,000 years. But we're going to see even more of this. Many coming in the name of Jesus and purporting to present Jesus. And, you know, we need to make it very clear that a Jesus who redefines moral boundaries is not the Jesus of the Bible. And yet there are many within the church today that are telling you that Jesus is okay with the current scheme of things where we have all these problems with um, understanding gender and understanding the roles of men and women, understanding the boundaries that God has given within regard to marriage. You know, and people would like to, to redefine those boundaries and they'll try and tell you that Jesus was cool with that. Well, no, that's not the case. Scripture is very clear. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus will never say anything, and, uh, and the, the word of God will never say anything that's, that's contrary to each other. You know, the idea of a Jesus who would not send anyone to hell is not the Jesus of the Bible. And you've got names such as Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and many others that have come out with these ideas. There was a, a book written um, by Rob Bell called Love Wins. Some of you may have heard of the book. And really it was kind of a, a re-evaluation of heaven and hell and what Jesus meant and what those terms really mean and what Christianity is all really about. There's a really good book we've actually got at the back there by Brian Broderson. In response to that, simply called Jesus Won. Not love wins, but Jesus Won. The job has been done. And Jesus did win. You know, and, and so often people try and get the focus off Jesus onto some, some other kind of um, idea, some emotion, some feeling or whatever. Um, and, and these individuals have come in presenting a Jesus, a false Jesus. And many get swept up with these things. So we, again, just need to be so careful of these false Christs. And, you know, just because somebody speaks about Jesus Christ, be careful. They may not be speaking about the same Jesus Christ that the Bible portrays. And then Jesus went on and said, When you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be you not troubled. You see, as I said a moment ago, typically for us, if we heard of those things, the natural reaction is to be alarmed, to be concerned. And yet Jesus says, expect those things. It's going to happen. Don't let that trouble you. Do you remember that verse I shared a few weeks ago when I did the verse of the week from Jeremiah? If you've run with a footman and they've wearied you, how will you contend with the horses? You know, if you get upset by some of these things that are going on in the world today, some of the judgments that are being made by our government, some of the decisions and laws that are being passed, if they upset you, how are you going to find it when they start passing laws allowing persecution of Christians? And we think at this stage, oh, that would never happen, really. It may well happen. And Jesus says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be. They're going to happen. This is part of the process, part of the plan. But the end shall not be yet. Now, this is the ye here. just want to just get this in the context that we're looking at. And Jesus speaking to these four disciples. He says, when you shall hear. Now, this has to be broader than just the four disciples. Jesus is saying this to them, knowing it's going to be recorded, knowing that this is going to go certainly into four of the Gospels. Sorry, into, into three of the Gospels, into Matthew, Mark, into Luke. Because later on, Jesus is going to say, when ye shall see the abomination of desolation. And we'll talk about that, Lord, when next week. But in that context, the disciples didn't see that. They, they, they died long before that. That hasn't yet happened, even in our day. Now, Jesus is speaking of the nation of Israel, specifically, when you shall hear. He's speaking of the, to his, his Jewish followers at this point. And, and Matthew helps us a lot by the context he gives us. That much of this Olivet Discourse 
is focused upon Israel. Now, there are elements that are applicable to the church, and we'll see that. But much of it was an answer to a Jewish question by some Jewish disciples about their Jewish temple, about their Jewish Messiah. We, we sometimes arrogantly read scripture with a very Gentile mindset and think everything applies to the church. No, we need to understand the context. And so much of these things specifically are about Israel. With that in mind, it's interesting to, to kind of build on this and look at what Jesus then goes on to say. Because it says, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places and there shall be famines and troubles and these are the beginning of sorrows. Let's, uh, we can spend quite some time on this. Nation shall rise against nation. Jesus quotes from the Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament, at this point from 2 Chronicles 15, 1 to 7. Also from Isaiah 19, 1 to 4, we'll look at that in a moment. Israel are the focus. Now we're going to talk about, I just want to look at those two quotes, the nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But, but also just to highlight the earthquakes in diverse places. We, we've seen more earthquakes now uh, than at any time in history. And yes, we mentioned last week that we are better at measuring and monitoring seismic activity across the globe. And yet you can go to Google. I haven't bothered putting slides and charts and graphs, but you can go there you can find quite easily that the number of earthquakes, uh, certainly of a large magnitude, are increasing. You know, history's recorded how wars have always led to, to famines. But, you know, more people died from disease and starvation after the First World War than died in the war itself. You know, it's not often discussed, but that's a, a fact of history. You know, we'll talk about some of these things in more detail in a moment. But in 2 Chronicles, let me just read this, this passage that Jesus quotes. And it's just picking up from verse 1 of chapter 15 of, of 2 Chronicles. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa, one of the kings of Judah, a good king, largely a good king, the wrong, and said unto him, Hear you me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you be with him. See, there were, there were conditions to God's blessing upon the nation of Israel. And the condition of blessing was always obedience. And, says, and if you seek him, if you seek him, he will be found of you. But notice again, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It's a very, very simple agreement. Sadly, we didn't have the opportunity on Thursday um, to have our study on Israel. But we will in a, a few weeks' time. And I encourage you either to try and get there or try and watch it through the streaming. Um, Adrian and I had a, a blessed morning on the train that morning. Um, with every intention of doing the study in the evening, just talking about the covenants and the, 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 the basis, the foundation of why Israel is important. And that's what we'll look at when we have that Bible study. Why is Israel important? Why, as Christians in, in this day, should we be concerned about the nation of Israel? And you need to understand the covenants, the agreements that God has made with them. Some of them are unconditional. Other ones were conditional. This is a, a very conditional statement. God is promising King Asa of Judah, that actually if you obey me, if you walk with me, I'll bless you. You know, actually it's not dissimilar for us. In the New Testament, in the end of Galatians, it says that God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow, sow, to, the, sow to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. This doesn't apply to our salvation, but it does apply to our rewards. John in Second John tells us there that we could lose out on obtaining the best that God has for us simply by not serving him, by not being obedient in the way we live our lives. He says, look to yourselves, you see that you lose not your reward. You know, we should look to see if, that we should gain a full reward and so on. And, you know, much of the New Testament you know, deals with those ideas as well. So, there's a lesson here. But let's just, just carry on. Because then God says, Now for a long season Israel has been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when they, in their trouble, 
did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and saw him, he was found of them. There was a history lesson that has been given here. For a long season, Israel's been out without the true God and without a teaching priest, without the law. But when they, in their trouble, notice that in their trouble, they turned to God. He was found of them. And in those times, there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in. But in great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. This is more than just Israel, okay? Clear from the context. Turmoil all around. And verse 6 says, And nation was destroyed of nation, is our phrase, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. So what's the context? What do we learn from this? Well, God allowed this turmoil to turn Israel back to him. And what we see is nation against nation. All those round about Israel in turmoil. Uh, Can you think historically of a time like now? Look at every nation in the Middle East. You know, we've gone past that stage where we had a whole realm of cruel dictators that were ruling over their people and keeping them in check. Those have all gone. And largely the Western powers have had a part to play in that. And what's come instead? Turmoil. Lots of fighting and civil war and unrest and... You know, can, can you think of another generation in history where the Middle East has had so much turmoil as it has now, with nation against nation, and all these problems that are existing? And why is God allowing this to turn Israel back to Him? Arnold from Duban also makes the the case that in the context here, the the idea is speaking of kind of global conflict as well. And he's saying that the first time that really occurred was the First World War. The Second World War really being a kind of a continuation of the First World War in many respects. We're into these times that the Bible is speaking about. And then he goes, nations shall rise against nation. We're seeing that exactly, you know, from that quote from Scripture, you see that's going on right now. All around Israel. And kingdom against kingdom. Well, that's that quote from Isaiah 19. We read there, the burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight everyone against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. Doesn't that sound like a newspaper headline from today? When we think of what's going on in Egypt, when we think of the the problems that nation's experiencing and the fighting that's going on. And the spirit of Egypt shall faint, or shall, shall fail in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols and to the charmers and to them that have familiar spirits and to the wizards. And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel Lord. And a fierce king shall rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Well, we'll wait and see the fulfillment of this in God's timing, but I don't think that we'll see anything other than Islam as being that cruel and fierce king that is now ruling over them. You know, and even with Islam, Islam is set against itself with the Shia and the Sunnis fighting, with this constant battle that exists. Again, nations should rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes, famines in diverse places. I'm sorry, earthquakes in, in diverse places. There should be famines and troubles. We're going to talk about Revelation 6 in just a moment. But, you know, the time that will come where money will not mean anything. Food will be the currency. And, you know, the the governments of the world could do so much to stop a lot of the conflict, a lot of the problems, a lot of the poverty, a lot of the famine. You know, 
these these campaigns which you know okay all well and good you know the make poverty history and all those kind of things I mean, Jesus said that poverty will continue until he comes. We're not going to eradicate problem, the problem of poverty because the problem of poverty is not a lack of food, not a lack of resource. The problem is the human heart. The problem is there are too many people that are in positions of authority and power that allow these things to continue. Jesus gives us his detailed glimpse in chapter 6. War is on the increase Famine is worse than ever, and earthquakes are increasing. Again, Jesus said these are the beginning of sorrows. This is where we get this this phrase, the beginning of sorrows. And typically then we take this and we apply it to that first period of the tribulation. Because in Revelation chapter 6, we have all of these things broken down. We have those four horses I'm sure you're familiar with. First of all, this white horse comes. In fact, just turn to Revelation 6. You can follow it through and mark it off in your Bible if you want to do so. It's interesting that as we see this picture unfolding as John is recording it for us in Revelation. These seven seals are being opened off this scroll that is in Jesus' hands. And as each seal is opened, something else happens. Verse six, oh sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. When I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts cry, uh, uh, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. A bow could be a number of things. It could be a bow like a bow and arrow. But a bow is also a sign of a covenant. Think back to Genesis, rainbow. And I think that the bow that this individual has is exactly that. It's a covenant. Because later we find that he establishes a, an agreement with Israel. We'll talk more in detail about this next week. If uh, the Lord hasn't returned by then. And we'll talk about the details that Scripture gives us about what Antichrist will do. He will come and establish a covenant of peace with Israel. For seven years. To allow them to start worshipping again and sacrificing again. And he's going to be seen to be a great leader. The world will admire this individual who's been able to unite and bring together peoples from all over the world and solve the Middle East peace process that for so many years has eluded so many great politicians. And suddenly this individual will step onto the world scene and come up with a solution. And it could be that the Dome of the Rock will remain standing. It could be that there'll be a great earthquake and it will fall down at some point. That's a possibility. I mean, Jerusalem does sit on a fault line. This Middle East rift that runs right the way down into Africa. There are good studies that have been done that suggest that the temple was actually not built where the Dome of the Rock currently sits, but slightly lower than that on the Temple Mount. And so both buildings could exist side by side. It doesn't matter how it happens, but it will happen that at some point, and quite probably in, in our lifetime, it could be in the, even in the next few years, that we will see Israel go ahead and build that temple. But they won't be able to be, begin the sacrifices again until they get that political go-ahead. And the one that gives them that permission will be this individual that will come with a bow, with a sign of a covenant, and he's going to come conquering and to conquer. He's going to conquer through false peace because we find that in the middle of the three and a half years, three and a half years into this seven-year period, he's going to break that agreement. And again, that will be our, our study next week. We'll look in detail about that and what Daniel has to say, uh, a prophetic model in advance of all of those things. Verse 3 then goes on. And when he opened the second seal, I heard him, uh, the second beast say, Come see, and there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And so peace is taken from the earth. And we find a quarter of the earth die. Right, and this is really scary stuff. I mean, we can't think of anything on this scale. It's too hard for us to imagine. 
I think is equivalent to all of North America and Canada and South America all being wiped out. It's just phenomenal. But this is what's going to take place. You know, so that's why Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of wars. You know, don't worry about that. What's coming beyond that is going to be far worse. Then it goes on, verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of... So he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. It's the equivalent of a loaf of bread costing 50 pounds. A loaf of bread that you can go and spend, what, 70, 80p or whatever on, costing 50 pounds. People aren't going to worry about the gold or the oil. That won't matter. That, you can't eat that. That doesn't help you. It doesn't sustain your life. And this is a natural thing that following war, you enter into this kind of time of, of hardship and famine and so on. Verse 7, And when they opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth beast saying, beast saying, Come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse and... His name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given him unto over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword. Here we go, the, the quarter of the earth. To kill with the sword, and with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Now, people tend to think of the beasts of the earth, you know, large, you know, lions, tigers, those kind of things. No, no, it could easily be pestilence. Tiny, microscopic beasts. Give me man-made things. Genetically engineered problems that man is creating unwittingly. But during that period of time, it's going to be horrible on earth. This is what Jesus says is going to happen. These are the verses we've just been looking at. This goes on verse 9 though. And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now we'll talk about the rest of us in a minute, but clearly there are going to be believers at this point that are killed, put to death, because of their testimony, because of what they stood for, because of what they said, because they weren't prepared to renounce their belief in Jesus Christ. And so they are put to death. And it's hard for us to imagine our civilized so-called governments coming to this point. But this is what we're told is going to happen. And these souls cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? They're saying, Lord, what are you going to do? They, they've killed us. What are you going to do about it? And, and the answer is given. The white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus says, okay, wait, because there are more that are going to be put to death. But when all of those that have been killed are going to be killed, then Jesus says, I will respond. And when I beheld... So, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And heaven departed as a scroll, and it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. We took more about these things. Fascinating statement about the islands being moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the chief captains and the mighty men, every bondman, every free man hid themselves in their dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said unto the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the lamb, from the wrath of the lamb. They recognize it's Jesus bringing this judgment. And yet they don't repent. It says, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? 
And this is what Jesus is referring to, this beginning of sorrows. These things happen. The signs in the, the sun and the moon. We'll, we'll get onto that as we carry on. But this great day of the wrath. You know, this is recorded in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13 says, How you, for the day of the Lord is at hand. That phrase, the day of the Lord, so often repeated in Scripture. Always look, it's um, sometimes referred to as the principle of expositional constancy. In other words, the same ideas, the same phrases are repeated time and time again. Helps us to follow a thread and a theme through. Howly, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid and pangs and sorrow shall take hold on them and they shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. It's going to be like labor pains, getting more and more intense. And they shall be amazed one at another, and their faces shall be as flames. Notice the source of this is from the Almighty. This is God bringing this judgment. This isn't the world bringing persecution. This is God bringing judgment. Behold, the day of the Lord <coughs> cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger. It's the day of the Lord. God is doing this, and this is why. To lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. This is the purpose. It's a cleanup operation on planet Earth. Those that have rejected God, that have rejected Jesus, God is coming to judge them. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, and the sun shall be darkened, and his going forth on the moon shall not cause her light to shine. This is Isaiah recording this, some 700 years before Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and saying the same thing to his disciples. <coughs> Verse 11, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than the fine gold, even than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth and shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, in the day of his fierce anger. <coughs> Again, it's because of the sin of man that God is going to bring this judgment. It's because of all those saints through the ages that have been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, for standing for the truth. You know, the we'll, we'll talk maybe some other time about the details behind it, but the, the methods of torture that have been devised through the centuries for believers in God's word, for those that held to scripture, uh, have been shocking. I mean, even in one part of the Vatican, it was later discovered in a, one of the lower parts, a place where they would literally brick people up in, in a wall. And they would, they would just be there just wasting away. Other, and some of them were literally just, just actually alive and just bricked up into a wall, cemented bricks around them. <coughs> so many horrible things have, have taken place, and we'll talk maybe some other time about some of those things. But you realize why God is going to bring this judgment. If anybody's got any doubt as to the validity of this, you now God is just. We get later into the revelation and an angel actually steps onto the scene and says, by the way, God is just in doing this because it gets so bad that the natural mind would go, well, isn't this a little bit too harsh? And it's like, no, it's not. This is God bringing a just judgment upon this world for all that it has done. Again, it's a time of God's wrath. <laughs> it's a time of judgment on this wicked and, um, and Christ-rejecting world. A time that God will use to turn Israel back to himself as well, as we've already seen that. <clears throat> now, just in regard to Israel, we read that quote from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. The Lord will allow these things to go on with one of the express purposes being that Israel will eventually wake up. Now, notice this verse from Hosea. This is God speaking. I will go and return to my place. An interesting statement in and of itself. When did God ever leave his place? Or through the incarnation, through Jesus. I will go and return to my place till they, Israel, acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early, although the Hebrew implies earnestly. God is going to allow these things, the things that we've just been reading about, to go on in the world 
with one of the reasons being that Israel, through this tribulation time, will turn back to him and they'll seek his face. Now, jumping back to Mark, and picking up at verse 9 of chapter 13. But Jesus then says to the disciples, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten. And, and that's true of the church. The early church is exactly what happened. Think of Peter and John, and think of Stephen who was stoned. And you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Matthew actually says in his gospel, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, I just want to clarify this, because the gospel of the kingdom is not the same gospel that we preach now. It's the gospel that was preached by John the Baptist. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. It's a very simple gospel. It's believing. In fact, it's what we read in Romans. That we confess with our mouths, we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have to repent of our sin, of course. But repentance comes with that. Repentance simply is changing direction. That's the, the gospel that we preach now. It's very simple. Putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. But John preached a different gospel. Remember what John preached? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That was John's message. And that is the gospel that is going to be preached again. Now we actually find in Revelation that angels are going to preach that gospel. In Revelation 14, we read verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and to kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him that made the heaven, and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of water. I I absolutely love this statement, because it's a real kick in the teeth of the evolutionists, isn't it? Because this gospel is being proclaimed, that God is bringing judgment, and people must worship him, because he is the one that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of water. It didn't come about through a process of random mutation and so on over millions of years. That is an utter nonsense that man has fabricated. You know, man will be brought to this place of judgment. <clears throat> Verse 11. Jesus says again to the disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives, they're trying to digest all this. I mean, you're thinking this morning, well, there's a lot to take in, but imagine for those disciples, as Jesus is saying this to them. Uh, they, they were sitting there, and, and bear in mind, their mindset was that any minute, Jesus is going to go and somehow defeat Rome and defeat the Jewish authorities, authorities. He'll be the Messiah, and they'll be ruling and reigning with him. That was what they were thinking. And suddenly, it's all being unraveled, and Jesus is saying, no, no, all this is going to happen first. And then Jesus says to them, But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. Neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given to you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. And he told now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. That may have once seemed unlikely, but even today that we see newspaper articles and headlines about children suing their parents and all strange, bizarre things going on. And certainly when it comes to matters of faith. You know, how the world would love to stop parents being able to talk to their children about their faith. They haven't got that far yet. But it's probably coming. And we're told, you should be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now this is true of the church. But it's also true of Israel. Because it goes on, it says, but he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Again, it's true of all disciples. It's true of the church. But specifically Israel. And particularly that second part. 
the statement that he that endures to the end shall be saved. Because it's saying that those will be saved who make it through to the end. But that's not what's told to the church. It's not speaking of the church at this point. You see, the church is promised a way of escape. So this can only apply in the context to Israel as a nation. In fact, Zechariah 9.9, we find that two-thirds of the Jews during this period of time will die. It'll be worse than the Holocaust for them. But for the church, and we're going to end on this. This is the high note. I don't want you to go home all depressed and miserable and ruin your Sunday and the weather's bad enough as it is. But Luke adds, Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. So now Jesus specifically speaking to the disciples and saying, You therefore pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus promises a way out for those that put their trust in him. And this is reiterated throughout the New Testament. Paul says, to the Thessalonian Christians. Bear in mind, he had three weeks with the Thessalonians. That's all. Sometimes people say, oh, we know we should leave this thing. You know, this is, you know, um, you shouldn't burden new Christians with this kind of information. Really? Well, Paul, three weeks with the Thessalonians. And all he did was talk to them about this stuff. Why? Because it changes the way you live your life. Paul says to them, but at the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then some destruction shall come upon them. It's just like it was in Jeremiah's day. As travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But he goes on and says in verse 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we've got this incredible promise that God is not going to put us through this time of judgment. Why? Well, quite simply because of what we've already seen from Isaiah. What is the purpose of this time of judgment? One of it being to turn Israel back to God, yes. But the other is to judge the sinners in this world. When was your sin judged? Calvary. So you have no need to go through a period of judgment because you've already been judged for your sin. And Jesus paid the price for it. And so as is consistent throughout Scripture, Jesus will take his people out of the world before this judgment begins. And believe it or not, it's recorded in the Old Testament as well as in the New. In Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21, the Lord says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut the doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. It's got that idea of a little like Elijah. Again on Horeb, the Mount of God when he's there. And the Lord kind of covers him as he goes past. Moses, similar situation. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. This is what we've already been talking about. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. But the promise is there that his people will be taken out of the way and protected until this judgment is passed. Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek ye the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Interesting, isn't it, the uses of words and phrases? Because Jesus said it's the meek that will inherit the earth. Well, a little bit of deduction. The meek will inherit the earth. Who will inherit the earth? The saints. That's very clear. So who's this talking about? The saints. Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Once again, a promise of being hid, being placed out of the way as God brings his judgment upon the earth. Joel chapter 2. Very interesting verse. We have looked at this some time ago, but just to reiterate again. Blow you the trumpet of Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Zion could either be Jerusalem or it could be heaven. It's used in either context throughout Scripture. Both those contexts. 
and different places. I think in this context it's referring to heaven. And it says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Interesting, because in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we find the elders gather around the throne. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. (coughs) Why? Why is this call happening? Seemingly an event taking place in heaven. The bride, the bridegroom being called together the elders being called and it says let the priests the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and they're being urged to pray look and let them say spare thy people O Lord now who's he referring to I believe it's referring to Israel God's people the nation that God chose And I believe we're seeing here a a picture of what is going to take place in heaven as the church has already been caught up and standing before the throne and that we'll be called together during this time of tribulation to intercede on behalf of the nation. Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. I think this is really exciting because I think we see here a glimpse of one of the things that we'll be doing when we're in heaven. We'll be interceding. We'll be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. We'll be praying for the Jews who are going through this horrific time on earth, but we're called to pray for them, to intercede. And notice that verse 18, then, as a result of those prayers, the Lord is going to move. He'll be jealous for his land and pity his people. We'll leave it there. Next week we'll carry on, we'll look at some of the promises that are given to Israel who will endure that time. And there are many references given to us of what Israel are going to endure and we'll talk further then about the other things that Matthew says or Jesus records and Matthew records what Jesus said of what is going to happen in that time. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a promise to escape these things, to come and stand before you. Lord, you promised your disciples that you would go away, but you would come again and receive them to yourselves, receive us to yourselves, the way you are, which was in heaven, that we would be also. Oh, Lord, we thank you. The Lord, we are not in darkness, that the day should overtake us like a thief. Father, we thank you. Your word tells us very clearly that there will be a blowing of a trumpet and then the dead in Christ will raise and then we will be raised also. We'll meet you in the air and you'll take us, Lord, back to that place you've been preparing. Oh, but Father, we're aware also of these things then that will unfold on this earth, the things that you were revealing to your disciples that Mark has recorded for us. Lord, help us to understand these things. And Lord, not just purely from an academic perspective, but so that it changes the way we live our lives. So it changes the way we respond to our neighbors who currently will be caught up in this unless they respond to the gospel of the grace of God. Unless they put their trust in Jesus. So Lord, stir our hearts, we pray, with these things this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you throughout this coming week. Let's spend some time fellowshipping together over some teas and coffees.